This is the London FinTech Podcast, brought to you by your host, Mike Ballaman, bridging the worlds of suits and t-shirts, of finance and technology, bringing you insights, stories, and inspiration from the golden age of opportunity and innovation happening in London right now. Hi, this is Mike Ballaman, and this is London FinTech Podcast, episode 155, brought to you in association with Smart Pension. And I'm delighted to be joined today by Albert Aziz Clauson, CEO of Underpinned, which is not into ladies' garments, ha ha, but rather using fintech to support freelancers. Unless you are rather lucky, a government near you may have destroyed your economy for a few decades. It has been commonplace even before that to say that the world of work has changed forever. We all know about the gig economy run on apps and quotes, especially in FS, individual consultants, unquotes, kind of professional mercenaries who are wrapped in their own service company. In between these two lies the third segment, less often mentioned in FS, freelancers. The chances are, all over the world, and definitely in the UK, when the Chancellor stops paying people to sit indefinitely on their sofa, that work will undergo a seismic shift in structure. Maybe someone you know will become a gig economy person, a freelancer or a consultant. Maybe your fintech will be hiring folks this way rather than as permis. It's all up for grabs, and whether you are a seller or buyer of labour right now, it's an ideal time to dive into the market and see how fintech can enable and enhance the possibilities for the advantage of both buyers and sellers. Plenty to talk about, so let's get on with the show. Good morning, Albert. Thank you for joining me today. Hello, thank you very much for having me. So, in terms of some bants not to do with fintech and not to do with a well-known virus, or governments. I was wondering about your heritage, given you've got an interesting number of names, which I couldn't quite work out where you came from. And I picked sort of France as one of them, but that was one of the few countries where you don't have ancestors. And not only all that, but uh, you also used to leap around in tights. I mean, or if we don't get into your sex life, of course, but we still do that. <laughs> yeah, well, on the name front, I have a pretty weird name because we're missing my middle name as well, as well De Simmons. So full name being Albert De Simmons, as is Clausen. Which is... Um, this is quite a common name. Yes. Yeah, no, yeah, it's yeah. Not, no, no, it's not, is it? Actually, no. um, and uh, I think, yeah, I think Aziz is Malaysian. Clausen is supposedly Scandinavian via Scotland. De Simmons, I think, must be of French heritage, although I think my great-grandfather was called De Simmons as his first name. And then Albert, I think, is a little bit more straightforward. And as to the ballet point, or dancing around in tights, rather, as you very aptly put it, because I certainly did dance around in tights, I spent the first part of my life very very focused on ballet from the age of three it was pretty much all I did and at the age of 11 I went to the Royal Ballet School and spent three years at the Royal Ballet School doing pretty intense kind of four six sometimes even eight hours of ballet a day before totally changing track and to be honest never really touching ballet again despite still loving it and watching it I ended up being an entrepreneur. Ah I see well that's a fairly unique start to entrepreneurship I mean doesn't ballet over time kind of destroy your joints and feet and, and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, I mean, I think you would be hard-pressed to find a ballet dancer over the age of 30 doesn't have some sort of uh, problem with their body. H having said that, people are a lot better now at looking after dancers than they used to be. So that's important. And for me, I, I mean, I stopped when I was 15. So I, I didn't actually get 
that far into ruining my body as such. Having said that, I did end up injuring myself a lot, but it was more because when I stopped ballet, I threw myself into every sport humanly possible, uh, except for without being surrounded by physio and nurses. So, you know, throwing yourself into four hours of rugby first time you go to a normal school was, was a terrible idea for my back, it turned out. Yes, no, indeed. Everything is very stylized. So without going into sort of too many specifics, you left it at a, at a sort of relatively pubescent age, but... Either the few ballets that I've I've seen uh, at the Royal Opera House, they seem to have very well-endowed gentlemen, or they all have sort of cauliflowers down their tights. I mean, presumably there's some secret there. This is a, something that is asked a lot. I don't think I've ever been asked on a, public, <laughs> on a public forum, but I can tell you the secret, and it has nothing to do with stuffing cauliflowers, although people have been known to put socks down there on occasion. The actual trick is all about how and in what way you are positioned more than anything else. And in fact, we used to have lessons from a young age about how to organise your nether region <laughs> as you were getting dressed. So it was part of your getting dress routine was how you, how you pack yourself. <laughs> Ah, I see, I see. Yes, well, that also occurred to me in a different context recently, which is whenever we drive around here, we're near the edge of the sort of North Downs, Kent Weald, uh, which was where the 20, whatever it was, 2012 Olympics, or wherever they did sort of uh, Olympics over here, were cycling. So it's forever infested with cyclists, left, right and centres, on very wiggly roads as well. So it's absolutely lethal for the driver and for the, for the cyclist. And they have the narrowest sort of saddles you can imagine these days. And you absolutely have to position yourself correctly, otherwise you get some very nasty injuries from, from that, actually. Yes. I think one of the things you can get from being a cyclist is you kill off your perineal nerve or something, which you really don't want to be doing. So um, anyway, let's move on from that to the far more interesting topic of fintech. There will be ladies present. So one day you gave around a man in tights. um, And as you say, you took out rugby and all that kind of stuff. So how did you go from all these pivots to underpinning the gig economy. See what I did there? Yeah, very, I very. Before, I, I had not hadn't occurred to me that underpinned had, had a wider meaning. I think that uh, <laughs> it's actually, I mean, when I say it out loud, it sounds to me like a completely normal narrative. But basically, I, I stopped doing ballet. I threw myself into a load of sports. That kind of went to the side in terms of my career. I really threw myself into education. I ended up doing philosophy of science at university, which was purely because I couldn't decide whether to do computer science slash maths or to do history and philosophy. And this seemed like a happy middle ground. Then I think the thing that actually led then to Underpin was I started getting really into business strategy consultancy and public relations consultancy for established companies, mostly tech, fintech and creative. And then I ran a small media and arts company that helped young and emerging artists. Now, as the work I was doing as a consultant was all freelance and the work I was doing with the company was working with the kind of purest form of creative freelancer, which is the artist. People have the most problem with their admin. And I was kind of looking at the problems that needed to be solved for these 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 artists and how to build a career out of being an artist at the same time as looking at exactly the same problems but in much more complex systems in companies and I guess Underpin was born out of you know how can I go to a wider demographic of people that work in this this project-based way like artists were with the solutions that I'm going to businesses with and and to these creatives with in a simplified format that's tech-led that's focused on the financial infrastructure behind this 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 way of working in order to basically do all the really boring admin that nobody wanted to do so that's how Underpin was kind of initially born. I see. Oh, that sounds all very logical, actually, how tedious. <laughs> but you do, you do have the advantage of knowing it from both sides. You say sort of stretch consulting and, and business, but on the other side, real problems that real people have, which is always a, a great advantage. Many of the companies that have been on the show who started that way got much further, unsurprisingly, compared to those that said, oh, I've got a good idea. I'll go and build something. I'll get some salesmen to go and sell it to people. Yeah. It's a demand pull rather than product push and just in passing as you did uh, for many years 
uh, the philosophy of science. We hear the word the science these days. Now, I think we've all spotted by now that in many countries, especially this one, the science, what is me it basically means a fig leaf, or we pass the buck to some sort of people over there because it's, it's yeah. not our fault at all. And what the science means when Bozo says it is the politics or, or my political interest. But uh, just briefly, what would your comments be on the phrase the science? What is the science? I mean, you really couldn't have asked me a better question. I think we should just spend the rest of the, rest of the podcast on this. So I, yeah, I, I did, it's more interesting than freelancing. I did, I did my dissertation on, on basically creating a criteria to define what scientific theory entails, so what is real about what science talks about. And a big part of that is how you communicate scientific theory. So actually, one of the things that I'm particularly passionate about is the idea of the dissemination of scientific information. I think we all know that journalistic science is often very questionable, or the way that politi politicians talk about science, exactly what you're saying. This phrase, the science, kind of references some esoteric idea of something perfect and actually in the world of science that's not at all how science works it's, it's evidence-based there's there's a huge amount of critical analysis around things people say to be certain or true and one of the things i'm actually really really interested in and will hopefully one day go back to is how to create a better path for like you know academic scientists to talk to lay people like us about what the word science means and what the scientific theories entail and i think it's it's the best way to share misinformation is is to not understand what the word the science means it's it's it's, it's just as as flawed as when we you know me and you talk about fintech theory and you know where payment systems will go it's it's an evidence-based um process Yes, it's empirical, isn't it, really? Well, I think one of the problems is all these PPE graduates that never did science and, and never really understood it and thought it was stuff. And, you know, some of science is quite stuff-like. I mean, equals MC squared is, is a pretty good approximation for most things in reality. But um, my uh, elder daughter, who just finished doing her physics at uh, UCL last year, I mean, she I was saying this to her, so she's now done more physics than I. And she said, well, you know, far more than you might imagine is a bit sort of hand-waving really but done in sort of very clever mathematics and approximations and, and all that kind of stuff but it's a real problem and uh, I think it's probably even worse than you're implying there. Yeah I think it goes both ways as well I think it's really important to note that. One thing is that philosophically and I've seen this in, in FS I've seen it every decade in FS and it will continue and it was the main reason behind 2008 is that people mistake mathematical modelling for reality Reality is this unknowable stuff. For all we know, we could suddenly wake up and we we're a butterfly, or we could wake up and we were in Red Dwarf and it was all a hollow deck or, or something. We don't know. You can't rule that out. So we don't actually understand reality. Even if it was just what we see, then it's a hugely complex thing which is unpredictable. Anyway, so they've got this modelling thing. But what happens is that modellers end up believing their bloody models. And this has happened time and time again, every decade in FS. People believe that the model, the pricing is, is correct, whereas the price is just what people are doing and yeah. buying and selling. And we've clearly seen this with the virus. And there we get into sociology, which is that if you have a hysterical model, you get more gigs because you scare the crap out of politicians. And politicians go, oh, shit. And it's the Michael Fish effect. You know, this guy famously didn't pr predict the whatever it was, 87 hurricane, and everyone laughed at him forevermore. So every modeller is on the bad side. Every bureaucrat doesn't want things to to go wrong and then you've also got the very invidious stuff where it's where it gets into climate modeling most of which if you actually look at them over the last 20 years have been appallingly inaccurate which is that the, the government then in a circular process starts funding various stuff so you only get funding for example if you're doing climate hysteria climate changey stuff which goes along with with the narrative so it's actually a much more circular thing. It's not these clever clogs and these stupid politicians that are not quite understanding them because they're not very bright and they just politically pick whichever one suits their case to, to cover their arse. But no, it's vice versa in that then via the government machine and bureaucracy, they fund, I'll just take physics as a, as a more less emotive example, they fund string theory, for example. 
you know. If you're in, in, you're in physics, you want to do string theory, there's billions of funding over there. It's gone nowhere. It's produced nothing that's provable or disprovable over, over decades. So, yes, it, as you say, it's an interesting topic, but it's incredibly circular and, and far more complex than, than most people realise, let alone dumb journalists for whom the science is something you add to something I just said. Like, I just had breakfast. It's the science. You know, it's, it's going to be warm tomorrow. It's the science. Yeah, I mean, I think I think that like the education that's required from scientists to be better at articulating how science works is just as important as in te- teaching people who are making decisions based on science and understanding at least the basic principles of how you know if you're presented with a theory, this is the constituent elements of that theory, rather than here is a theory that is like you know take it or leave it, believe it or not, I'm saying it's true kind of thing. Yes, absolutely. Well, we'll, we'll move on for a bit with one last remark. That having been an information warrior on LinkedIn for the last two months of my sins and spoken to a number of uh, real scientists and all that, going back to Eric Byrne, the games people play, actually everything is sociology. Everybody is playing a game. I'm playing the role of the host of a podcast. You're playing the guest and, and blah, blah, blah. And the game that scientists are playing is not the one we're all taught at school, which is a search for eternal truth. The game they're all playing, of course, in universities, is get the next funding grant. That's the game. And that skews the quotes, search, search for truth. Anyway, that's, that'd be a, a different podcast for a different, different, uh, different time. And I'll, I'll have you back on that one. So back to the sort of rather more specific and rather more practical from all this highfalutin stuff. So, as I've said before, back in the day when I were a lad, people got jobs and you go to work for ICI and you spend 30 years working for ICI. And I have some mates who actually did that in 1983, not ICI, but they went to Shell. They were at Shell for decades and they, and they retired. Or you joined the civil service or you joined the health system or you were a lawyer and you do that for your life. So we all know about that. That's the old model. And then we all know about stuff like you can be a driver for Uber half an hour a day or st- stuff like that. A gig economy, did a liver pizzas, blah, blah, blah. In FS, banks got rid of loads of people. So they became, quotes independent consultants, wrapped themselves in a company. So what is the topology of all this non-permi employment? Yeah, so I think that like there's 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 a couple of ways of approaching it. You can look at it from like a legal and accounting structure, which is that kind of the self-employed economy, which is then segmented into, you know, these longer term contractors wrapped in service um, companies down to Uber drivers. But I think, again, like you referenced it, that bit in the middle, which um, which I think is incredibly important. And, and the, the largest portion in terms of generating cash for the economy is small project based workers. There's, you know, the, the global economy for the self-employed is worth two point two three trillion dollars in, in the UK. We have five million self-employed of which over two million are dedicated freelancers and, and many more who don't fall within that category because they're hobbyists or have side hustles or projects and, and don't fall into that that categorization but basically you have a kind of segment in the middle which we're calling freelancers you might more aptly call project-based workers who are working from project to project largely in the creative sectors if you think 15 percent of the economy is self-employed 30 percent of it is within the creative sectors so quite a significant portion of our workforce working in a way where you know they're, they're doing similar jobs to people who are full-time perhaps in similar forms formats but the way they're positioning it is I'm I'm here for a particular project rather than I'm here to work for this company to the company's end as a whole the end is you know it is project by project I see so going back to media as an example I, I know a chap who was a producer of documentaries for the BBC so you know he'd go around and chat up his mates and say oh what about what about a documentary on butterflies at the Hindu Kush and it, you know he'd sell them the project he'd get a bit of funding for a project it's you know 
a six-month thing or something like that. Now, is it, I mean, are there any time limits? Yeah, so I think, like, generally speaking, it tends to be six months or shorter. So longer than six months, and it's a, the contract term kind of negates the need for the same level of kind of administrative difference to being a contractor or a full-time worker. The key being, for us anyway, that the financial admin, the fintech part of it, the general admin, the project management part of it, is significantly more acute if you're doing shorter projects because trying to wrap yourself into a company for a project when you're only there for two weeks or three months is a lot of work to kind of embed yourself into something effectively and efficiently so it becomes a much bigger problem when they're shorter but but to your point on media i think media is probably one of the best examples like the documentary is a great example of you you would hire a series of people to fulfill that particular project perhaps a kind of more consistent one or or something with a persistent workforce is is uh, journalism like we look at companies like the observer the guardian the independent telegraph whatever it is you read and you know, historically, they would have a staff of writers. And now they do not have a staff of writers. They have a very, very small editorial teams. They have relatively small staff writers, uh, writing teams, but they have very large rolling decks of freelancers that come in to do the odd piece of work. And I, if you're thinking about a project, that's probably a shorter project can get. That might take a day to write one of those those articles. And you're being contracted for your specific output for that specific role. I think that's journalism is probably one of the places where it's happened most acutely. So the admin around that becomes very complicated, paying these people, the invoices, the contracts. It's often treated in the same way you would treat a service company, but the project is so small, that's a lot of bureaucracy around a very small job. And what it leads to is a huge amount of inefficiencies. And I think we all know that you know late payments in, are a big problem. But imagine if you're doing hundreds of those payments every month to very small, very, for relatively small amounts to lots of individuals. The problem become significantly more complex. I see. So putting it in the context of fintechs and, and startups, companies such as yours, I think you're just about a dozen people at the moment. So the model has been for some time, uh, and it may well continue to be the predominant model, that if in a month's time you need more work on your app or something like that, and you need, a, I don't know, for the sake of argument, a Python developer or something like that to do a certain chunk of stuff, yeah. and you don't have any Python developers, you could either sort of hire a permi Python developer, but you don't need that. You could hire somebody for a six-month contract, but you don't want that. You just need someone for, for the sake of argument, three days or something to, to Python up something or other. Completely. That's a kind of that would be a freelancer in that context. Yeah, very much so. And and the term freelancer doesn't really kind of have a very very specific remit because like another part of our audience which we work with is is micro businesses, so small you know mini agencies that have one or two people because ultimately they still work in that same kind of project based format as a freelancer does. The only difference being that they're structured as a company. So it is important that we work with freelancers first, but actually a growing demographic of our community fall into the, the, the kind of very small micro company side. I see. So an example of that would be that many podcasters are, of course, wiser than I, and they get someone else to edit their podcast for them. Right. So I send the, podca- send the podcast off and he spends three hours editing it and sends it back. Exactly. Yeah. And I think, you know, differentiated because technically freelancers are part of the gig economy, the kind of the word that we always use, but they're not the gig economy we think of, even though they are going from gig to gig. They're kind of segmented from Uber drivers in that they tend to be, you know, this is skilled work for a, for a particular output that you're hiring a particular person for rather than, um, you're, you know, you're, you're clicking on a button and getting a getting an Uber driver, which brings greater complexities because one of the definitions of freelance work from a contractor point of view, from a government point of view, from a tax point of view, is that the person has to be replaceable, which is a bit difficult, you know, when we're talking about IR35, which is a big problem in, 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 in the city. It's a very big problem to try and understand that definition because you kind of inherently they are replaceable in that you could find someone else that could do the same job, but you've hired this person for a particular reason, even if it's only for one project, so that it doesn't make, it doesn't make as much sense as people think it was, uh, which, but there's a whole suite of issues with IR35 that we won't 
dig into. Yes. So what I take away from all that is that, as always, surprise, surprise, the bureaucracy is taking a long time to catch up. So off the top of my head, the Inland Revenue are treating it one way and the, the, the Department of Work and Pensions are treating it another way and, and all this kind of stuff. And you can argue, like most things in philosophy or anything, uh, about definitions till the cows come home. The reality, though, is whether it's you or I in five years' time when we're banging rocks together to try and make a little bit of fire to keep us warm in the evening, but we've got a chance of two hours work next week. Or a fintech who can no longer hire a permi or even a consultant, but just wants to hire somebody for a few hours or, or a few days. That slicing work into potentially smaller and more flexible amounts is going to be an increasingly important technique beyond the segments where it's traditionally been used a lot. This is something that we've we've seen a lot of. And I think that there's, there's kind of two examples that I'll give which describe it quite acutely. One is that um, agencies, particularly creative agencies, but agencies to do any sort of consulting activities, you know, why would you have a permanent staff of people who are pretty good across a spectrum when you can have a really, really amazing senior management staff who are amazing at managing people and then you hire the exact right person for each project that you do. And so the service you provide is as much building the team as it is, as it is delivering the, the end product. But the other thing that I think we've seen a lot of recently although not wanting to mention the virus, is that companies who are looking at uh, how efficiently they work, who might be you know, furloughing or, or firing people, are looking at fulfilling tasks that were done by permanent staff members in ways that are significantly cheaper and more efficient. So, you know, you might be need, you need to run a marketing campaign. Well, actually, we only need three assets and then we need to market it. We don't need the person making the assets to be there all the time. So companies are now looking to freelancers more so than they might have done previously. Absolutely. Well, without trying to sort of parcel up everything you do as solving all the hassle, which I assume sort of uh, is writes large, but we'll come on to that um, next. The model you outline has an obvious challenge. I mean, let's just take the fintech and the Python as an example, which is that you're really talking about a marketplace and you've got buyers and sellers and how do people find the right ones? So, for example, let's say I need a Python developer. How do I find a good Python developer? If I need a new logo for the, the unlisted board.com, which is my project which is going very slowly in the background, how do I get a logo? Well, I go to Fiverr and I look at the references and blah, 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 blah. So is it not the case that for this micro slicing of buying and selling of labour, it's not just solving the admin thing, coming back to that, which is what you're doing, but also it's how on earth would a marketplace like that work efficiently, given that the product is not carrots, is not oil, but it's human beings and they're funny things as far as I've noticed. Yes, yeah, so I think this is, a, this is a question we get asked a lot and it, and it comes up usually very early on in any sort of investment conversation because most people's references are exactly the people you just described, like Fiverr, who are recruitment platforms that make their money from transactional fees from, from the actual process of recruitment or the money that, that, that clients pay to advertise the job opportunities on their site. So we are not a recruitment platform. We don't make any money from the transaction of recruitment. We don't monetize that transaction. So we're not a marketplace in that sense. And as you say, we do admin. But the problem that you're talking about is incredibly important. And we believe in a very different solution to the marketplace. So my, my perspective is one of the biggest problems with finding freelancers is that it's a relatively new format of working. Most companies looking for freelancers don't have an accessible network of freelancers. They kind of start from scratch. Exactly your example of you need, I mean, even if you wanted to get a podcast editor, assuming you know no one else who does podcasts, it would be very difficult. If you know other people, chances are, I bet you would ask those people, you would look to your network. And in full-time work, we all know that it's much easier to get a job if you know somebody at the business and there's a sense of network involved. So a big part of Underpinned in the find work part of what we do is not 
facilitating recruitment by offering job opportunities. It is much more about how as a freelancer can you start to build your professional network so that when you go, I need somebody to edit my podcast or somebody had already reached out to me about that. I already have a link to those people. And as a business, particularly in that model where I describe people are using more and more freelancers on a rolling basis, slowly but surely building networks of freelancers to lean on. Now, it might not help you in that kind of one-off, I need someone right now to do a really small particular job, but that's not really what we're targeting. We're targeting much more how can companies build effective ways of working with rolling freelance staffs and how can freelancers build effective ways of building professional networks. So in that sense, we're more of a partner to help you build the networks while, you know, as part of your admin rather than a marketplace where you can just go and find a particular job. Right, I see. Okay, well, we'll come back to underpinned in more detail later, but just noting that in this glorious new world, the smaller you slice and dice your labour into, whether you're buying it or, or selling, the more that one needs a far more efficient way than, say, traditional recruitment process. Let's say you're Shell and you're recruiting an oil engineer in the expectation to be here for 15 years. You can spend quite a time recruiting that. Yeah. If you want an oil engineer for half an afternoon, <laughs> you can't spend weeks doing that because it, it doesn't work. So that's one challenge, which is, if you don't like the word marketplace, connecting supply and demand. Yeah. And then the second, which, is, which I sort of uh, facetiously waved my hand at, or rather just sort of summarised, is the word admin, which is presumably, uh, and you said this slightly before about journalists or something like that, to cut a long story short, uh, if you've got your big company, I'm a company, I have to be a company, I've been a company for 20 odd years. So I, I've got accounts, I've got accountants, I've got all that kind of crap. And that sort of wraps it up. If, uh, and I assume this is where gig economies are defined in this context, if I go and drive for Uber, they will presumably have some app and I press the hours on it and it spits some money out to me at the end of the month and all that kind of stuff. And so they wrap up the admin, I put my labour in, it spits money out. Yep. So between the two lies this freelance thing. So what are the challenges of becoming a freelancer? Uh, and then how do you sort that out for people? Yeah, so I think that there's the first point to note is that nobody's ever left university in the history of university being like, I understand how to run a business and start a business, even if they've done a business degree. Generally speaking, our education system in the UK, at least, is not particularly focused at kind of practical business building understanding. So the first hurdle is they just really simply things like how do you send invoices? What is the purpose of an invoice? These kind of like basic principle things, which, you know, a big part of underpinned is making sure we have easy, accessible resources for people to understand that. And bear in mind, that's just as big a problem as companies looking to hire freelancers who haven't done it before going, you know, what kind of contract do I need to do? What do I need to be covering? IP is not a consideration when you have an employee because you own all the IP. When you're hiring a freelancer, it's a really important consideration. That's what you're buying. You're not even really buying, you know, you might might be buying their time and the IP separately. So that, that's important to know. So there's an educational part to it. But if we go to the kind of the, the bare bones construction admin, it's split across three buckets. There's the finding bucket, which is for freelancers, how do you find and pitch work? You know, how do you get your get your jobs? For, and, for, and for clients, it's exactly what you said. How do you find and access networks for freelancers? Then there's a managed sector, which is how do you how do you manage the a project? So as I said earlier, if somebody's doing half a day of work, you don't want to onboard them onto your system. You don't want to have a whole... You, you, you want that system to be quick, easy, accessible, easy to understand, easy to communicate and secure, right? So that's a problem. And then finally is the getting paid, which is where we kind of really fall into the, the fintech space, which is paying individual freelancers is very laborious. Getting an invoice for a new freelancer that you don't have on your bank account takes three to five minutes to pay. You have to copy and paste information where you 
it's easy to make an error. Now, take all of those three sectors and combine the fact that paying somebody, right, is the process of going, they were contracted correctly for this amount, they were managed and successfully completed the tasks, now I am ready to pay for them. I don't think anybody's ever worked in a company where the HR and contracts team effectively communicate with the projects team who effectively communicate with the accounts team. So the accountant goes, yeah, I've got everything signed off, I'm ready to pay. So big problem you see is how do you get from effectively pitching to being paid on time in a way that's actually efficient for every party involved so for the businesses the biggest problems are like i said the amount of time it takes to pay the ability to match that payment to the work that's been done in the original contract and then you know forgetting how they find the freelancer that initial step of the initial communication with the freelancer for a freelancer it's a little bit more complex because they're actually kind of doing the work it's how do you create a proposal and a pitch that's effective that, that outlines your prices and why your price like that second once you start to engage with the company how do you create and manage a contract which covers your IP and your, your your payment security. Now, for most small companies and for most freelancers, legal advice is basically unaccessible. So how do you achieve that? And now from a fintech perspective, a contract is the most important part of your payment. It is not the invoice. The invoice is once everything's done and dusted, you're just asking for the cash, right? The bit that's important is when you set up the agreement for what you're being paid for and how you're being paid. And people forget that a lot. So while it might look like you know it's only the last bit of the problem that is a fintech issue, actually within the freelance economy, the bit that's a fintech issue is getting to that point effectively and efficiently with the right communication. So the problem is all of these three sectors of fine managed pay are siloed in a full-time job because accounts don't really need to talk to contracts that much and they don't really need to talk to project leads. But within a freelance workflow, when you're trying to do these things quickly and efficiently for half a day's work or a week's work, they need to be incredibly smooth and incredibly efficient, and they're not. And that's why a lot of companies don't use freelancers and why it's very expensive to use freelancers because you pay massive recruitment fees, the payments are late, you pay an accountant a lot of money to pay those individual invoices. You know, If you pay 100, 100, uh, 100 freelancers a month, the number of hours you're spending Spending five, three to five minutes per payment at the end of each month. That's a huge amount of time you're spending. So the, the problems in this sector are less about kind of the actual work that's being done or the actual payment that's being done and much more about the infrastructure from finding the person and agreeing something that is uh, with an accessible format such as a you know an easily accessible contract through managing light touch management of the kind of project from an electronic perspective and then finally payment which as i said needs to be matched to these other components in an efficient way I see. Okay, so there's a lot in that, um, and anybody who's interested can replay that section. I won't even start to summarise it, but what you're saying at a sort of high-level point is that the future of being able to micro-slice labour to be bought and sold is heavily tied up, and this is where the whole fintech stuff comes in, or tech, and it's just an interesting point as an aside there. I mean, you know, the further we go the more things that are going to be less, quotes, pure fintech and more cross silos. Yeah. You know, other techs need to be merging together rather than everybody living in their own little sort of, sort of sterile cell. The future of this is in large part tied up with companies such as yourselves being able to use the technology that's out there, the fintechs that are out there, the APIs and absolutely everything and cross silo stuff. And we had Coconut on, I think, before Christmas or earlier in the year talking about how they're crossing silos as well to make this marketplace more efficient and more accessible. Because what you're implying is that up to now, let's say before computers, well actually before computers, it didn't really exist. I suspect, as you say, in the, you know, for the sake of argument, in the 1970s, 
the Daily Telegraph or the Guardian would have a full-time staff and that was it. Now it's changed over time but one of the things that's accelerating the change is the support from technology. So we'll wrap up with you explaining a little bit about precisely what it is that underpins sells to buyers and sellers of, of labour uh, and what products you have uh, and what sub-products you have. But Having said that the future is heavily tied up with the well-known government reactions to a, a virus that remains nameless, it's also clearly tied up to whether you guys are successful in make this whole journey easy, pleasant and simple, a bit like you're getting an Uber car, you just press a button, press a button, oh that was easy, as opposed to fumbling around for, for change and, and paying people. Is there anything else to say about how you see the future right now, other than it's a bit of sort of cloud of unknowing? Yeah, I think, as I kind of alluded to earlier, there is definitely a sense of businesses are looking for more efficient ways of work. So I, I do think we're going to see a rise in businesses looking for freelance who haven't done previously. And similarly, people forced into freelancing, as people were in 2008, due to just their economic circumstance and looking for slices of work because they can't get the full pie, as it were, which then leads into them maybe doing it more full time. Now, putting the trends in work aside, the other thing that I've noticed uh, acutely already is the number of, or sorry, the willingness of companies particularly, but individuals as well, to use technology to manage workflows. So a lot of the fear around using a freelancer is effectively managing somebody who, even if they sit in the office, functions in quite a remote way, whereas now we're all using remote tools all the time and very comfortably and confidently. And that that transfer, like the cultural change required to get somebody to manage a freelancer is usually about how to use and engage with the freelancer being a difficult thing to overcome. A lot of those problems have been over overcome already with their permanent staff because they're comfortable communicating electronically they're comfortable managing projects from afar um, so i think that that is an acceleration more than anything and regardless of the economic uncertainty and, and perhaps you know the slowdown we're going to see in work more generally i think the appetite the ability and the desire well it's the same as appetite i've just thought i'd wanted to say three words uh, for using freelancers from the perspective of businesses is going to increase and the the number of people who will look to freelancing as a solution is already increasing and we've already started to notice it. In fact, from the business perspective as well, literally last week we had four times the number of jobs come to our community than we did the week prior, which just shows the, the, the appetite growing. Yes, it's an ill wind that blows nobody no good. So before we wrap up the show, I'd like to thank all the listeners out there. I hope that your work situation is as good as it can be and I hope you've got a bit more idea whether you're buying or selling labour that uh, there is going to be a creative response, response to the challenges we have, the world of work has been changing for my entire lifetime and I'm sure it will continue changing for everyone out there who's listening's lifetime. I'd also like to thank my plan partner for the podcast, Smart Pension, who are fast, secure and free. Check out their UK workplace pensions at autoenrolment.co.uk. So Albert, just wrapping up, we, we've covered quite a lot about this area. I think that my takeaway of it is that it's sort of more interesting than I thought at the beginning, largely because you're facilitating the slicing and dicing. And if anything is easier, people will do more of it in life. Although that didn't really work because I put a, uh, I, I thought, well, one reason I didn't take much exercise is that my study is set up to sit and read books and do computery stuff. So a couple of Christmases ago, I, I put a weights machine in because I thought, oh, it's going to be really easy to do it now. I didn't have to go very far. And if I turned the webcam over there, you'd see a pile of books on it. But, uh, <laughs> that, 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 that's home gym equipment for you all round, actually. You end up sort of hang, hanging things off them. So we'll, we'll gloss, over, gloss over my deficiencies. But just very briefly then, so can you just tell the thousands of listeners out there what you as a company do, what you provide for freelancers, uh, and equally what you provide for companies who are looking to use freelancers? 
I think the simplest way of describing it is from proposal to payment, it's a, a single subscription virtual environment where you can manage that whole process. For freelancers, it's what we call a virtual office, which is basically an online suite uh, that you can log into where you have all of those tools from the find work bucket, the manage work bucket, and the get paid bucket to make sure everything is easy and accessible. You know, contracts that are automatically built effectively and you just choose your IP and payment security. And from a client's perspective, the exact inverse of making it very easy to find freelancers, whether you find them on Fiverr or you find them through our network you can add them and manage them to your crm so you can use them again in the future managing the contracts and payments um you know paying somebody on our system is 90 percent faster than paying an invoice for an individual payment but if you're paying 100 people it takes exactly the same amount of time so you would save 60 hours a month if you had 100 freelancers sorry 60 hours a year if you had 100 freelancers just in payment times so that's the basic proposition and the one thing that i want to flag which is quite specifically relevant right now is we're releasing our invoicing service as a as a native app on your phone which is just going to be for payments it's called pay up it allows you to make payments via magic link so somebody with the app can send that link to anyone anywhere in the uk and you can pay it instantly with zero commission so significantly cheaper than say paypal or stripe or or whatever else you're using and the other really cool bit of it is you can use it in person with a qr code so if you're a shopkeeper you can present it and there's no cap on value so i can ask you to pay me 200 pounds you don't have to have the app you just have to have a mobile phone and a bank account in order to pay it there's no use of cards there's no physical contact which is obviously relevant now we'll be launching that in the next two months. Excellent. Well, you've explained all that very clearly. And I always like the shows where I end up more enthused about the topic than I did at the beginning. And I can see that this has the potential for being a huge growth area with huge potential. And in terms of fintechs that are successful, uh, having seen them for years and years and years and years, it sounds a, a truism, but it's amazing how many people do the opposite, which is if you're going out there in the world solving a problem and seeing the way that the world is flowing you're more likely to be successful than if you think oh i'll be in that bank as well you know and then you spend years trying to work out how to monetize so that's really interesting albert i wish you every success in the future and i hope that as far as underpinners go goes that you won't become a freelancer yourself and that you'll remain there and build this platform to ever greater heights thank you very much and thank you very much for having me Thanks for listening. If you have any challenges or needs with your unlisted company board, get in touch with me at mike at londonfintechpodcast.com. We could sit in a vendor all day Watching a firelight dance Watching the firelight dance We could walk in the mountains before dawn Watching a happy moon ride Watching a happy moon ride To come away from the city the tarmac so dead And the people so sad Come away from the city But with the faces so great With the pain of the
We are wild like the mountains and the trees. Can you see what I mean? Can you see what I mean? We fit in between the earth and the sky. Kiss the city goodbye. Wave the city goodbye. Watch the fire light dance with me. 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 Watch the